Keep me in your heart for a while. I thought about that song this past week. When I read this email posted on Andrew Sullivan's blog, the journalist blog, it's just so simple and so moving. And the author was synonymous, didn't know who he was. And that's really, really fitting. Just change just a few of the facts of the story you're about to hear. And the voice could be, and probably at some point will be ours, any one of us, any one of you. Wednesday will be the third anniversary of the day my wife Becky died. Battled young cancer for a year and a half. She was diagnosed at the age of 30. No risk factors. And the thing about Becky is that she was never ever dying of cancer, but always living with it. She taught her classes on Friday. She was an assistant professor of mathematics, and she died on Sunday. I spent an hour in the hospital on the day she died designing a project for her students the next semester. She wasn't in denial about the prospects of metastatic lung cancer. At the same time, she spent her days doing the things that meant her days worth living, that made her days worth living. I've read a lot of comments, especially in the past couple days. I've read a lot of comments about how having a positive attitude and continuing to move forward with your life gives you the best chance to live longer. I don't know about that. I hope it's true. It's not always true. What I learned from being Becky's partner during this time is that we don't have as much control as we'd like to about how long we live, but we do have a lot of control over how we live. She continued living with cancer the way she had lived before being diagnosed. She was the same mother, the same wife, the same friend, the same teacher, but sometimes she was lugging around an oxygen suit. If I found out today that I had one year to live, and that meant I would change the way I spend my days, then I need to change the way I spend my days now. It is my hope that having someone in the public eye, being so brave, so open, and so grateful for the blessing of this day, might cause many other people to examine their lives as well. Now, of course, this anonymous person writing on this blog is responding to the 60 Minutes interview with Mr. Edwards last week that many of you saw, and the words were such an affirmation of life, in the face of life's deep fragility. Not hubris, not pride, not denial either. Just simple courage. Facing what we can know and accepting what we can't know. It can be such a tricky thing to find that balance between our ignorance and our insight. Between what we're so certain of and the kinds of things that we can never be certain of. The art of living with illness or the art of living well at all, regardless of how old you are, regardless of what situation in life you find yourself, regardless if you just got a great checkup yesterday. The arts in living arrives in the poise of learning to live with honest hope. Sober hope, true hope, illusions, but hope nonetheless. Now, based on her interview, at least, if you saw it last week, Elizabeth Edwards seems to have achieved this kind of equilibrium. But it's new and it's early, and let's face it, she's a politician's wife. There's always a little bit more ease in front of the camera, perhaps. The darker hours, the more challenging ones will, of course, come after. The ones we don't get to see, the ones we should never get to see. Often fear and hope 
uncertainty and courage, they collide together. And it can be dizzying when you live in between those times. We're in a season right now of the intersection. Things collide in springtime because we're at a time of beginnings and a time of endings. Final things and first things. Spring is a planting season, we know, but the harvest, well, that comes much later on. March in like a lion, out like a lamb, a time of contrast, sometimes extreme. 70 degrees a couple weeks ago on Monday, and by Sunday we had to cancel church because these sidewalks out here were encased in ice. It's hard to know what to depend on in this season. Dress for cold or warmth, bring an umbrella for sunshine or, or rain. Better to want to be dry. Not sure what to expect this season. Not sure what to count on. One of the things I can count on is tomorrow's opening day. One of my favorite days of the year, but I'm a Yankees fan. Hope is a different thing for a Yankees fan. For those of us who root for the Bronx Bombers, as has been said uncharitably of people like me, rooting for the Yankees has all the thrill of rooting for Microsoft. Actually, the old quote was IBM, but that doesn't make any sense anymore. Sometimes it can feel like rooting for the big, bad bully on the block. But if I were a Phillies fan, and I'm fond of that team, that's where hope might feel a little bit more dangerous. I mean, come on. All those years, all those false promises, all those quick starts and bad endings, or bad endings and, and, and good starts and good endings, excuse me. False hopes and near misses. So being a Phillies fan is like, and frankly, I think spiritually being a Phillies fan is much more rich than being a Yankees fan. I have a little bit of spiritual envy right there, and it was true. About three or, three or four of my closest friends in the world are Red Sox fans, which up to a few years ago was the most spiritually rich person you could be in the world. Now it's Cubs fans, I think. As far as I know, T.S. Eliot was not a baseball fan. But he wrote the perfect opening words for opening day, capturing that feeling of tentative hope. April is the coolest month. Reading lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Winter kept us warm, covering earth with forgetful snow, eating a little light. So much hope, so many possibilities when I know it's talking about. Dare be trusted. What Elliot's saying is that spring erupts in all sorts of amazing and unexpected ways. In life, in winter, it's assured. It may not have been much, it may have been little, but at least that meagerness you can count on. At least that small amount was ours. That scantiness collides with the amazing abundance of the season we're about to enter. It's a season of awakening and a new life alarm is going off. But rather, perhaps, sometimes we've got to sleep up. Say, not quite yet. Not quite right now. A professor of mine years ago at seminary, she called this the difference to what the great theologian Paul Tillich called the anxiety of non-being, which is the fear of our lives being exterminated. She called it the anxiety of being. Because hope lifts us up. We have the fear, the anxiety, that can also let us down. So dare we hope. Spring has all this invitation to us. A lot of us take to the road, especially you can see that today. 
spring break, travel, start new things, open up the windows to let out what was shut in. And so we head out into the open road of the soul. This is a season for pilgrims. This is a season for travelers. In Christianity and Judaism, two of the great faiths of the world that we are most directly descended from, on this time in the liturgical calendar, today is Palm Sunday, when Jesus completes his ministry on the dusty back roads of ancient Israel and enters Jerusalem. This week also marks the start of Passover, when the ancient Israelites left the land of bondage in Egypt and began their journey towards the promise, towards the promise, the hope, the land of milk and honey. I classically understood both these stories are comedies. This fiction doesn't sound like comedy. Not ha-ha comedy. But they both have happy endings. Within the stories themselves, both of them end up okay. A week after Palm Sunday, the gospel of Jesus rises from the grave. Definitely not proud. For the Israelites, eventually all that wandering does deliver them to the promised land. But that's at the end of the story. And the Israelites, well, they had to wait for a year for it to arrive. Before Jesus and before the Israelites arrive at that appointed place, it's the rigors of the journey that define who they are. Greeted with palm leaves upon entering Jerusalem, on this Sunday we are told, the hope of triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the hope of the beginning for those who believe he was the Messiah, that this would lead to the age, the promised age of peace. Heralded it was. At the end of that week, Jesus finds himself hanging on the cross crucified by the Romans, left to die like a common criminal. The Israelites, well, it goes on and on and on for them. Their pursuers and the persecutors drowned in the Red Sea, we know from the story. No more songs of slavery to sing. But they've barely taken three steps as a free people. And what do they do? Start to complain. Oh, we don't like the manna from heaven. It's good stuff to eat. It's too hot out here. We'll go back. At least Egypt, we knew what that was. At least the meager life in Egypt, we could count on that. It was winter, even if it wasn't cold in Egypt for the Israelites. They started to yearn, as many of us do, for the devil that they knew, rather than grasp the hand of those hopeful and uncertain angels. Maybe slavery wasn't so bad, they think. And they start to know what we know as well. That living a free life, living a free faith, is insecure. And be At least their security and confinement, freely, newly found, seems to broaden the horizon of possibility to the breaking point at some time. So much is present, so much is there, so much hope. And freedom also shakes the foundation of the ground upon which you walk. The earth can be unsteady. It's like the old man Brooks in the movie The Shawshank Redemption. Remember him? Locked up for so long behind bars, he can't live with freedom. He can't live without the walls and the bars defining who he is. It's disorienting to move from the dark and closeted world of the winter, whether it's winter real out there or the winter here in our hearts. It's disorienting to move from that closeted world to the open road. Because of this, it's said that the ancient cartographers drawing out maps for wayfarers on the open seas illustrated all unknown portions at the end of the map, at the end of the world that they knew, with these words, Here there be dragons. Here there be dragons. At the edge of what they knew, there the monsters were. In the deserts, the wandering Israelites, and the entrance to the holy city like Jerusalem, in any authentic journey where the road is not clear, there are going to be, folks, dragons. 
and the dragons confront us on the open road of the soul, we may think that we don't have the strength to face them. And then, like the ancient Israelites, when you start to think, why exactly do you do Why do you start out? And of course, we know that the greatest places the monsters are, they're not out there. They're always in here. Inside of our own hearts, inside of our own selves. Because out there, at least, the monsters can be captured or killed. And when the dragons live in here, inside of each of us, they're the dragons that have the name of doubts or despair. Because what urged us out on the open road was hope. And because that hope is a little bit tenuous, the dragons start to say, Why'd you do it? Why'd you start? Why'd you try? Was the road that we took really worth it? The dragons that dwell within us, too, are trickier creatures than the ones we can capture or kill. Because if we try to capture or kill the dragons inside of us, guess who else goes? It's a two-for-one deal. We do too. The dragons inside of us to death, we put part of ourselves to death as well too. Tom Waits sang it this way, if I exercise my devils, well, my angels may leave too. And actually it was the poet Rilke who said it, but if you know Tom Waits' voice, you can hear it in your mind. When Tom Waits is singing about devils, I get the sense that he really knows what he's talking about. The dragons will come. And if they can't be killed outright, well, then they can be faced honestly. But this takes courage. It's still a gift. It takes practice. And it takes commitment to sit with our dragons. Get to know your dragon's name. Maybe the one you're bearing with you today. Get to know your dragon's name. Turn to it, just like in our greeting, and shake its hand. You'll just be meeting yourself. Get to know it. You may find, you probably will find, that like the old fable, the mouse realizes that the bellowing monster, that bellowing lion that she was so afraid of, the monster just has a thorn in his paw. It wants some help. With your help, the monster can be killed. The thing is, in our life, we're the mouse that is frightened, and we're the monster that bellows both at the same time. We are simultaneously timid and scared and loud and proud. So don't run away. Get to know the dragon. Don't yearn for the quiet slumber of winter covered in the forgetting snow. Face it. Face the monster even when we might and you might be wanting to be busy doing so many other things. Because traveling, traveling that path and riding the dragon all the way down is the only key there is to true love and true self-acceptance. This is how Carl Jung, who was probably the great first psychiatrist to wed the insights of religion with psychology, he described his patients who really had found it, who had found health and wholeness as individuals. He described the ones who had ridden their monsters all the way down and found strength within themselves that they did not know that they had. The ones who had learned to live beyond fear. The ones who had come to know that life is both light and shadow and that they cannot be divided. The ones who had become, as we would say, whole people, no longer divided against themselves. He described it this way. They came to themselves. They could accept themselves. They were able to be reconciled to themselves. And they were reconciled to adverse circumstances and events. This is almost like what we used to say in church. This expression. They have made their peace with God. They have sacrificed their own will. They have submitted themselves to the will of God. Submission? It sounds good. I want to do that. Not what the religious liberals do. We're choosers here. 
We choose our lives. Well, maybe submission doesn't mean giving up. Maybe submission doesn't mean giving up hope. It's not what a survivor does. It's not what Elizabeth Edwards is seeming to do. But submission really means to accept the conditions of life. To accept that life is in a certain place no matter how much we might wish it to be elsewhere. To give oneself over to it. That is to submit. And in submitting we find courage. We take part because we know that finding part is not a weak thing. Hope makes our hearts beat strong and able to live in the presence of risk. I came across just a couple days ago this poet, Kate Waits. She's a professor I knew some years ago. And she was also a runner. And yesterday I did my own 10 miles preparing for my upcoming half marathon. But the conditions that I ran in yesterday weren't anything like what she's describing in this poem. It's called The Going Out. And it's her thought about riding 10 miles, about running 10 miles. And the subtitle in parentheses really clarifies what's at stake here. Called the going out from Lincoln, Nebraska, at 40 degrees below zero. 40 degrees below zero. He starts. I always seem to go out too far. The road stretches clear and inviting before me, challenging my body's limits, testing a heart's willingness to drive itself yet another mile. And she finds that the going out is the easy part. But then she finds the hills seem always to take me to the edge of myself, daring me to take them coming off a languishing level strip of road, catching me a little unawares. She begins to find the surprise that all true traveling always continues. She continues onward, step after step, breath after breath, one after another after another, thinking that she can run over and through the pain that she feels forever, and also postpone that moment where she turns around. And the poem continues. Five-mile turnaround comes quick and sharp. With a slap of a stinging air across my naked face, bringing tears to my eyes, sur surprised by caressing, supportive wind turned treacherous now, warning me that the run back may be a mortal matter. Working her way back, step by step, pace by pace, breath by breath, in the frigid cold now, wondering what propels her to have set out at all to begin with. Why'd you take this run? comes close now to the end of her journey and concludes. Not until safety appears and the finish line in the distance I can see can I revel in the venture that tries my spirit so or wonder or wonder how far I may yet go tomorrow. How far I may yet go tomorrow. The end of her run She's almost come to find the end of herself. She finds in the endurance of that uncertainty, in the engagement of the risk, she finds fraud. Finds the fullest expression of herself. She can rejoice in what she has accomplished. And then, having been out on the open road before and faced the dragon of fear out there, what's she going to do? Tomorrow she's going to set out. She face the dragon once more and find herself ever more. How far may we yet go tomorrow. Right here at Wellsprings, we're a new community, just beginning. There are risks, there are imperfections. Launching a new church, frankly, the odds of it, I'll tell you, it's like starting a new restaurant. Like starting a new business. Always risks. Always hope. And because of that, we're here for a purpose. We're here for a reason. 
We believe that progressive religion can be just as powerful a force for real life change and for making people of purpose as much as dogmatic religion claims that it can make and produce people of purpose. Well, folks, i got to tell you, some say this can't be so. That our kind of faith can't bring true comfort and healing. It's just a place for people to come and ponder some interesting things and think about stuff. But we believe, we believe in this kind of faith, our kind of faith, can call forth the best from us. And also will call forth our dragons. Our faith has sometimes been called the last stop on the train that ultimately reaches the Sunday morning golf course or the Sunday morning newspaper. But we believe that we are home for seekers. For those who fear that eternal call to peace and wholeness and goodness. It may not be the language that was spoken 3,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago or 500 years ago, but the language will come 500 years from now. But it is the same eternal call to spiritual life. The ancient promise of life abundant and life fulfilling. And so this holy week, yes, is a holy week for us as well. Because we do not know how far we will go yet tomorrow. The day after that. And the day after that. We don't know. And we're going to follow that call. The great thing is there's no absolute map to where this is going to take us. It is the open road. We have better than that. We have the true north. We have the true north of our hopes. We have the true north of an orientation to the sense that life can be whole. In spite of all the things that want to fragment us, in spite of all the things that want to divide us, in spite of all the things, including ourselves, that want to say it can never all hang together. Yes, it can. That's the promise. The promise is all peace and wholeness. We don't go into the wilderness of planting this church, and we don't go into the wilderness the rest of our lives without preparation. We don't go without preparation if we remember what brought us out on the open road to begin with. The sacred quality of our lives is not a figment. The dream of expanding the circle of hope wider than it has ever, ever been drawn is not an illusion. And the feeling of our hurts, our hang-ups, our habits, the feeling of these things is not a lie. These things do not easily. Not without toil and sweat and tears and sober hope. But just as the wilderness of the unknown is real, so too is the promised land real as well. So travelers, I must invite you. It's my joy to invite you. Take part in this pilgrim season. Take part. The road is long and the journey always uncertain and we're going to meet dragons along the way. But there is that other side. There is that other side that makes our steps here now sure and certain. The best we can do is to say we'll find it together. That we'll keep on keeping on. That we'll be grateful for the kind of people that we are to get to gather every single week and celebrate and mourn and be comforted and listen to the ancient and eternal voice of the Holy, calling us evermore.